Okay, we'll be in Hosea tonight. I said last week, I was hoping to, to get into Hosea last week and it didn't work out, but that's okay. But if you're looking for Hosea right after Daniel, and uh, Hosea is the first of what's considered the, the minor prophets, We've got 12 minor prophets. And um, we're not going to necessarily look too much in the prophets tonight. The, uh, the thrust that I want to uh, I, I want to look into tonight is the relationship of Hosea and his wife Gomer, because we've been in this study about uh, salvation in the Old Testament and looking at how salvation has always been by grace through faith. It's always been the same. It's never been by works, never been by our efforts, never been. Uh, achieved or merited by anything that we have to offer. And so we saw many different examples through Scripture that uh, testified to that, from Adam in the very beginning uh, and Israel uh, playing a, a, a huge example throughout the Old Testament. There's been several other characters that we've looked at. Last week we were looking at Ruth. Of course, Ruth was the uh, Gentile bride and uh, Naomi and her family went to Moab during a time of famine. There was a need, and instead of seeking the Lord for their need, uh, they tried to take care of it on their own. And uh, really, that's the story of human history. We, we don't seek God. We, we seek our own devices, our own wisdom, our own ways. Uh, but Naomi, being somewhat of a type of Israel, was displaced, went down amongst Gentiles, but through that, even though they were disobedient, even though they went where they, they weren't necessarily led of God, God still used it. And it amazes me how even our failures, God can turn into successes. Even the things that we do uh, outside of his will, he can still work those together for his good and uh, or for our good and for his glory. And so he does that with Naomi. She uh, meets up with Ruth. And through that, Ruth learns of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whenever Naomi goes to return to uh, Israel, uh, Ruth goes with her. And whenever she goes there, she comes in contact with Boaz, type of Christ, the kinsman redeemer. And she comes to Boaz and offers herself up, seeks his uh, salvation, if you will, his redemption, not by anything that she deserves nothing that she has to offer, uh, and only coming by the avenue that God had made. God had made provision for the kinsman redeemer in the law, and so she came God's way uh, to Boaz to seek redemption, and of course, whenever she came to him, he redeemed her. And we see a picture of salvation in that. We come to God and God's way, uh, laying ourselves down at his feet, basically. That's what she did to Boaz and seeking for him to redeem us. We have uh, nothing that we can offer, no price in our hands. It's just based upon his love, his mercy, uh, who he is. It's based on his character that he accepts us and saves us. So we saw that last week. Uh, in the end of our discussion, we got talking about um, the whole thing with the kinsman redeemer, and I should look into that more this week since, since we brought that up. And uh, honestly, the... People's opinions and writings, it's all over the place. But with what I could find in Scripture, uh, there is nowhere recorded in the Bible that there was ever uh, an instance of polygamy that resulted. It seems almost as if 
uh, it would have went to the first unmarried. That was my conclusion. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. It would have went to the first unmarried. Did it always go that way? Maybe not, but what not was God's intention? In the, in the, not with yeah. sinful men in it, but I don't see any evidence anywhere that it was ever. Uh, and, of course, they had a whole different uh, way of doing marriages and weddings and stuff back then with uh, betrothals and families being involved and all. And so it would just be agreed, okay, well, if we're looking for a wife for our son, well, before we can go to the the next wife, we've got to take care of this one. And so it's an automatic betrothal. It's like, hey, guess what? You've got a wife. You've, you've got hand-me-downs from her older brother. <laughs> yeah, we got, you know, everybody likes hand-me-downs, right? Maybe that's a disrespectful way of talking about a wife. But, but one of the main things that we were highlighting last week in that is that God was, we look at it from the, the fleshly way with uh, consummation of marriage and all that kind of stuff. But God was looking at it as a means to, to take care of the vulnerable, take care of, make sure that they were, uh, not left destitute. And it actually shines more light on marriage for a way because it was a protection for the wife. It was a, um, a means of security. It had that, um, I guess you could say it was a covenant. It was, uh, it was binding. And so he was, um, the words escaping me at the moment, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, there's the word I'm looking for. Uh, it was a commitment. And so that was one of the, the biggest things, I believe, with the marriage, is that the man was committing to do his part to take care of that woman, basically, till his death. And that is what marriage is, is uh, a commitment one to the other. And so I see in the, the thing with the, the kinsman redeemer, more the commitment as well. And the commitment brings security, and it brings provision. And so that I believe that was what God was uh, highlighting in that. And as I said in the Bible, I don't find any evidence of it resulting in polygamy. You would have just went to the next near kinsman that was able to take a wife. Now, was there occasions where the guy said, okay, sure, just bring her on over, add her to my hair? That probably happened because men are mankind, I should say is corrupt and wicked, and we do that kind of stuff, right? And so that's that's kind of where I arrived at looking at that. But anyway, I don't want to go back and rehash all of that and, and spend the, uh, the whole service on that, but we come up to the book of Hosea, and I, there's no way that I can really get around with the study that we've been doing. There's no way that I can skip over Hosea, because even Hosea's name means salvation, and so if you get into the names and what names mean, and we'll do that quite a bit in our study tonight, but just the name Hosea means salvation. And we can see throughout the, the book of Hosea uh, the salvation of the Lord and how he works about salvation. And we see God's character highlighted, his attitude toward his people highlighted, the way that he interacts with mankind is there on full display for us. And so if we would take a... Uh, kind of a worldly or even a religious perspective of God's dealings with mankind, we have God almost like Zeus on top of Mount Olympus, right? Saying, okay, if you'll be good enough, if you'll please me, if you'll at least not make me mad, right? Isn't that how a lot of times mankind and religion looks at it? Then I won't zap you. 
And so you look at all the false religion and you look at paganism and whatnot, it operates the way that mankind thinks God should operate. Because guess what? Mankind made it up. That's one reason we know that Christianity is not made up of mankind, is it's not a religion that man would make if he could make it. It is something that is humbling. It is something that uh, takes away any kind of pride, any ego, any arrogance on man's ability because we have to come to God empty-handed. We have to come undeserving, right? That all of it is based upon his character. All of it is based on who he is. It's based on his mercy. It's based on his goodness. And if mankind is making a religion, if mankind is making up a God and all these things, it is based upon man's goodness. It's based upon uh, man's deserving. It's based on man's behavior and man's character. And Christianity does away with all of that. And so instead, what we find, it's not that God is setting up high saying, do all these things and then I will consider having mercy on you. Do all these things and try your best not to make me mad and maybe I won't send you to hell. Instead, we're finding that God is, from the very beginning, He is loving. From the very beginning, He is merciful. From the very beginning, He is willing to... Uh, sacrifice himself for his creation, even though we're undeserving of it. And we see that on display throughout Hosea. And so with Hosea, as I said, his name means salvation. He's the first of the minor prophets. And as I believe next week, we're going to get into uh, salvation in the times of the kings and prophets. And so I think that'll be next week. Uh, But we're just going to be looking at this one this week. And... Going through the different prophets, God asks some strange things of his prophets. What's some of the strange things that you all remember that God asked his prophets to do? Well, yeah, he was supposed to be cooking his food over dump. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the one was to sleep on his side for a certain amount of time out in public where everyone could see him and then turn over on the other side and lay on that side for so long. Right? Yeah. yeah, one of them went naked in public. Uh, now, the, the degree of nudity, I'm not sure, because it could have been naked by biblical standards where they've been more like in their undergarments. Or it may have been birthday suit. I don't know. People have different opinions on that. I wasn't there, thank goodness. So I don't know. But even uh, nakedness by biblical standards would have been uh, not necessarily as naked as it is today. I think we've we've lowered the the bar so much here that in order to be considered naked, you have to be naked. But in plenty of even not distant past, if you would have been uh, what some people consider appropriate on the street, uh, it still would have been naked by their standards, right? Uh, but anyway, so yeah, going naked in public that was an odd one. What else we got? Yeah, the one was the. I'm not sure if it's the same one, but shaved, and then he was supposed to chop it up and weigh it out and burn it and different things. There's all kinds of weird stuff with the the hair that he shaved. Bury the belts, and then did he have to eat that? Yeah, he buried. He buried it. I don't know if he had to eat it, but yeah, the one buried the belt in the river in the mud and stuff. of course, we have uh, the one prophet wasn't allowed to mourn his wife's death. That'd be a heavy one, right? 
Uh, we have one that was to, well, maybe. But um, we had the one that uh, was to uh, act like he was fleeing the city under siege, dig a hole through the wall, take his stuff and move his stuff in the middle of the day or middle of the night, I can't remember, right? And so they're acting these things out. It was a picture to the people to get a message. If nothing else, it was to get people's attention so that they were willing to listen. And they're like, okay, this guy's nuts. He just, he flipped his lid already. What's going on with him? And so they're watching and they're observing and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with this guy. And while they're gathering around speculating, mocking him, making fun, he gets finished with it. Then he delivers a sermon and says, you know, you're wondering why I'm doing all this stuff. This is a picture of what God is getting ready to do to you. And so then they're listening, they're perked up, and he's already got his sermon illustration right before them, right? He's got their attention, and he's got it played out in a way that they are able to understand it. Uh, there was one of them, I think it was one that was laying on his side for so long, was actually supposed to be play-acting a, a siege and to, to build the ramparts and to, to attack and be like, okay, you got a grown man playing cowboys and Indians out here in the middle of everyone almost, you know? And so there's all these different things that was going on, but out of all of them, even the guy that was going naked, okay, out of all of them, I think Hosea got the worst end. And Hosea's was a lifetime commitment. Hosea's was uh, something that would have been extremely heavy burden to bear. And honestly, I love the story of Hosea. I don't want to go through it, but I love the story of Hosea because of what it teaches. And so that's why I want to look at it tonight. So let's go ahead and read Hosea chapter number one. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I don't think. Short chapter at least. But it says, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass that at that day... I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by, uh, by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now when she had weaned Loruama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Loami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet number, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God." Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And so as we look at the book of Hosea, uh, the thing that stands out to us immediately is what God commands his prophet to do. He says, 
Jose, your life is going to be a object lesson, much like the ones that we've already talked about. He says, your life's going to be an object lesson. You're going to be the object of uh, ridicule. You're going to be the object of heartache. And basically what God is choosing for Hosea to endure, he's saying, Hosea, I'm going to let you in uh, on what I'm going through. He's getting a sneak peek into the heart of God because God says you are going to be acting out. And in this object lesson, you are going to be playing the part of God. And you are going to be married to someone who is going to treat you the way that the nation of Israel has treated me. And so this is Hosea's task. He says, you're going to get to feel what it's like to be the God of Israel. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? He's kind of in uh, equal company here with Abraham, because you remember Abraham had to take Isaac up on the mountain to offer him up. And guess what? He was getting a sneak peek into what God was going to one day do in offering up his only begotten son on top of the mountain for the sins of mankind, right? And so both of these men, uh, God just kind of gives them the special place. He says, I'm going to let you uh, experience what I'm experiencing as God. And that I just can't really wrap my mind around that. But it's pretty incredible for me. But of all the things to experience of, of being God, that would probably be the, the, the last one that we'd want to sign up for. It's like, hey, I want to be able to create everything by the word of my mouth. I'll sign up for that one, right? That would be good. You know, speak things into existence. You know, I'll keep everything in going. I'll be able to uh, display my might and the, the creation and the flowering of the, the trees and all the foliage and in the storms and in the wind and in all the seasons. Hey, that would be great. How about you're dealing with mankind? Well, that's a little more difficult, right? You think about the splendor of, of God's abilities and all of the things that he is able to do and all of the things that's within his power, and then you look at how he interacts with mankind, and it doesn't really set well with us to put ourselves in God's place. Because it comes back to the, like the, the old saying or the old way of saying, if I was God, right? Because if I was God, I wouldn't do what God does. If I was God, I wouldn't put up with mankind like he puts up with mankind. I would be quick to uh, be sending down the lightning bolts like Zeus on the mountain, right? But that's not what God does. And so getting back to Hosea and seeing what's going on here, he says, Hosea, you're going to go and take a wife of whoredoms. And so what that means, you're going to basically be marrying a harlot, a prostitute. You're going to marry a woman who will not be faithful to you. And people have differing ideas on whether or not she was uh, this way at the time that he married her. Some people say, no, that wasn't until afterward, but I don't think that's consistent with what we see in Scripture. I believe that she was unfaithful before he married her, that she was living a, a, an adulterous lifestyle before he married her. And some people have the idea, you know, they'll see someone who, uh, they're not right with God, they're not a Christian, whatever, and, well, I'm going to marry them and I'm going to change them. Well, Hosea didn't even have any hope of that because God said to begin with, uh, she's going to continue in her character. She's not going to change. You're not going to change her. I'm not going to change her. She's going to continue to be unfaithful to you. And whenever he says, uh, and children of whoredoms, he says she's going to be unfaithful with for you and she's even going to uh, be uh, having children getting pregnant by other men. 
and then she's going to be uh, acting as if they're your children. And so you're going to have to be questioning the paternity of every child that she has, whether or not it's even yours. And so that was that's going to be heartache after heartache. And we see in verse number three, after God uh, told him what was going on, it says, so he went and did it. God says, this is what you're going to do. Uh, you're going to, in the end of verse number two, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. That's where he says, you're going to enter into my sorrow. Just the way that, the, that Israel has treated me, your wife is going to treat you. And so he went, he took Gomer, he said, okay, I accept the assignment. And immediately it says, and she bare him a son. So they got married, started a family. And something I want to interject in this that I feel is quite important just in the story is that God's had him to do this, but God always equips us for the jobs that he gives us. And so I believe wholeheartedly that Hosea wasn't just doing this as an assignment from God going through the motions. Because could you imagine him disconnecting from her? Be like, okay, I'm going to marry her, but I'm not actually going to let myself love her. I'm going to marry her, but I know she's going to be unfaithful. This is just an object lesson. I'm going to go through the motions. Yeah, she's my wife. Yes, we'll go ahead. We'll have children. But all along, I'm going to not treat her as a wife. I'm going to uh, harden myself against this. I'm never going to love her. I'm not going to give her my heart. And insulating himself against the hurt. Could you imagine him doing that? I mean, that's kind of what we would do. Uh, we've all had uh, tasks that we didn't like to do, things that we knew wasn't going to be pleasant. And so we start trying to wall ourselves up against it. But what we find with Hosea is that God gave him a genuine love for this woman. Uh, it, it's kind of skipped over. Basically, one, one verse here says, He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, to be his wife, right? Even a half a verse here. It doesn't tell about anything as far as the betrothal, the courtship, anything like that. Did he just go down to the brothel and say, Hey, can I pick number nine? I don't know if they number them or not. I've never went to a brothel. But, you know, how did how did that go about? How did he find her? How did they work all of those things out? I don't know. But it seems to me that she's also going to have to be uh, on board with all this. He's not just going to be like, hey, I'm a prophet, and God told me to find a rotten woman and marry her. You up for it? Any woman going to take up that that marriage proposal? There's got to be a lot more to it than just that, right? And so anyway, uh, they have a relationship. God has given him a love for this woman because honestly, wouldn't it be cruel if God didn't supply that? If God didn't allow him to love her? If God had him go through all of this for nothing, just disconnected? But God gives him a legitimate love. And uh, even on top of that, if he didn't legitimately love her, how would he actually experience what God was having him to experience, right? And so the first child that they have, God says, name him Jezreel, which means to scatter, to sow, because Israel is going to be experiencing judgment where they are going to be scattered from their land. And so this is a message to the house of Israel. And so I'm assuming that whenever he named this child and he announced it to all the people in the village, maybe he called up his mom and the grandparents and different ones, I don't know. He's like, I'm going to name it Jezreel. Oh, that's a, a, a weird name. Why would you name your kid to scatter, to sow? But 
I guess that would give him an open door to say, okay, God told me to do it, and this is why. The next one we find is Loruhoma, which means no more mercy or uh, unpitied. So it comes to the place where uh, basically God is telling Hosea, Israel is coming to the end of their line. Israel, I've been patient with Israel all this time, but I'm no longer going to be able to show them mercy. Uh, I'm no longer going to be able to be patient with them any longer and endure all of the things that they have done against me. So they are running to the end of the rope. And so if we come back to Hosea and when he was ministering, he was ministering, it tells us here in the first verse, under all these kings, he was ministering at the end of the northern kingdom, at the end of uh, the nation of Israel, right before they were carried off into Assyria. He ministered for about 50 years. And so during that 50 years, there was a huge decline that took place. Uh, they went from being extremely profitable and, and prosperous, from being at a place where they were pretty comfortable with the way things were going, till it got pretty rotten toward the end. Basically, Hosea uh, was able to see the decline. He was able to see his prophecies uh, coming true. Okay, In the southern kingdom, uh, about 100 years later, Jeremiah would be his counterpart because Jeremiah got to uh, see the 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 sudden downward slide of the nation of Judah. And so Jeremiah was the one that was prophesying and saying, turn now, repent now, because judgment is coming if you don't. Then he was able to, to preach the message. Uh, you've crossed the point of no return. Judgment is coming. Prepare for it. And then Jeremiah actually got to see them carried off into captivity. Hosea was the one that was Jeremiah's counterpart to the northern kingdom of Assyria. Okay, and so this idea of no more mercy, he's basically saying you're past the point of no return. You have uh, run roughshod over God long enough, and so no more mercy. The third child that we come to is Loami, which basically means not mine. And if you look at the, the name here, uh, in verse number nine, call his name Loami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And so imagine Hosea here with his family. He's got his wife, Gomer. Lovely name, right? I never have figured out the significance of her name. But anyway, you've got his wife, Gomer, and then you've got to scatter. You've got no mercy, and then you've got not mine. And this was before paternity tests. This is before, you know, daytime talk shows where they do are you the father kind of thing. And they didn't know. They just had to say, well, you know, she doesn't have a good reputation. She's not very trustworthy. He kind of looks like you. He kind of looks like the postman, you know. And that was kind of the way that they would do things. But with here, he's got the certainty of God. God says, that one doesn't belong to you. That'd be a rude awakening, wouldn't it? So God tells Hosea, that last child at least doesn't belong to you. And anyway, uh, the significance of that in relating to Israel was that God says, okay, basically, uh, I ran out of patience and I've got to the place where I'm no longer going to treat you as my special separated sanctified people. I'm going to allow you to go off into captivity. I'm going to pretend like you're not mine anymore. And as we continue through the book of Hosea, in chapter number two, the first uh, two verses, uh, saying to your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruma, 
Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore uh, put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. The children are old enough now to where they know what's going on. They're not babies. They're not crawling around on the floor. They're old enough, maybe even to adulthood. Jose has been going through this for quite a while. And so he says, plead with your mother. Plead with her that she will quit her ways, that she will turn away from her adulteries, and that she will come back to me and that she will be faithful to me. Now, under the law, which Jose operated, an unfaithful spouse could be at least put away, if not uh, executed, right? But we see that he's constantly pleading with her. He's constantly seeking after her. He's constantly trying to bring her back to himself. And so he sends the children to go and plead with her. And that's the, uh, the equivalent of the prophets that God continued to send to the children of Israel, pleading with them to turn back, pleading with them to turn back, pleading with them to turn back. And they still refused. And so as you continue down through verse number two, not verse number two, chapter number two, I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but uh, it talks about how she has turned to all of her lovers to supply her desires and her wants. How she has uh, I'm getting my, my thoughts straight here because you've got kind of going back and forth between Hosea and God, Israel and Gomer back and forth. But what's going on is essentially he's saying Israel has credited their false gods and these heathen nations around them with being the one that loves them and cares about them, supplies their needs and takes care of them. And I'm assuming from the way that it reads that Gomer was doing the exact same thing. That was a parallel. And so Gomer was going out. She was going to her lover. She was continuing to be a harlot. She was receiving uh, benefits from her lovers and she was ignoring the things that Hosea did, the things that he provided, and that she was uh, seeking after the things that she could receive from everyone besides her husband because she is a, an adulterer. She is uh, unfaithful in that. And so adultery is not just physical. It's also uh, mental and it's also emotional. And so with her, she was going about to, to have her needs fulfilled from people other than the one who was meant to fulfill her needs. Okay? That's what adultery is, is seeking to have your uh, needs fulfilled by someone who is not your spouse, the one that's not meant to, or someone besides the one who is meant to fulfill those needs. Okay? And this is what Israel was doing, is they said, okay, we've been espoused to God, we're in a covenant with God, but we're no longer going to be seeking Him for protection. We're no longer going to be seeking Him to uh, help us in the times of difficulty. And when the enemy comes against us and whenever there's droughts and whenever there's famine, we're no longer going to be looking to him for those kind of helps. We're going to be looking to the gods of the Canaanites and the gods of the Babylonians and the gods of the Assyrians and everyone else. And we're going to be praying to them. And whenever things go in our favor, whenever we start seeing successes and prosperity and whenever we win a battle, we're not going to credit God with that. We're going to credit all these false gods and all these false idols and all these other nations that we're turning to. We're going to get our needs met, not by our God, but by all of our other lovers. And so that's what's going on. She's going everywhere else besides the one who is her husband. Everyone besides the one who is supposed to fulfill those needs to have those needs met. 
And so as we continue down through verse number or chapter number two, we get down to verse number 14. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And if we just, I'm trying not to read a whole big bunch of this because of time and interest, and I don't want to expand it out into a, a week's long study. But what we see in this is Israel was unfaithful. Gomer was unfaithful. And God's saying in chapter number two, though they were unfaithful and they did all of these things, he's kind of, in chapter two, he's, he's showing the indictment. He's saying, this is what she's been up to, but I'm not going to cast her aside. I'm not going to throw her out. I'm not going to destroy her. Instead, I'm going to let her experience the results of what she's doing. Let her experience the consequences. Uh, uh, that's the word. Let her experience the consequences of her actions. Uh, she thinks the grass is greener on the other side. I'm going to let her find out that it's not. And so this is what's going on. And Hosea comes to the point in time that Gomer uh, has been going out to her lovers and finally she quits returning home. She's left him. She's somewhere else. She doesn't, or he doesn't know where she ended up at. And God's the same way with Israel. He says, if you want to continue chasing after your false gods and all these other nations, I'm going to let you. But it's not going to be a fun road. And you're going to be uh, going through all of these consequences of your actions. But at the same time, I'm not going to be mistreating you. I'm not going to be throwing lightning bolts at you. I'm not going to be causing harm or wishing harm upon you. Instead, I'm going to be trying to allure you back to myself. I'm going to be wooing you back to myself because guess what? God still loves them in spite of all these actions, in spite of the heartache that Israel has afflicted on him, in spite of the heartache that Gomer has afflicted on Hosea. And so he says, okay, have your children to plead with her. Uh, let her go astray. Let her follow after her lovers. She's going to hit rock bottom, and whenever she hits rock bottom, you be there to pick her up. You be there whenever she is destroyed, whenever she has ruined herself, and you be there to collect the pieces. And that's basically what he's saying in verse number 14. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to bring her back uh, into the wilderness, and I'm going to speak comfortably to her. And I'm going to give her... Uh, give her her vineyard from thence and the valley of Acor for a door of hope. And uh, she shall sing there as the days of her youth and as the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And so we see the entire cycle completed here. Uh, we saw it in verse or in chapter number one. We're seeing it again in chapter number two. In chapter number one, we ended with, yes, this is how horribly things went wrong, but by the time we get to the end of chapter number one, he says, I'm still going to keep my promises to them. They're still going to be the as a number of sand on the seashore. Eventually, they're going to come back to me. They're going to follow after me. They're going to know me for who I am. And so we are seeing this repeated over and over again. Israel's been unfaithful. Uh, they're going to go through all of this uh, suffering as a consequence of it, but I'm not going to cast them away. I'm going to bring them back to myself and then I'm going to restore them, and they're going to know my love in the end. And so the, the chapter I really love in Hosea is chapter number three, and it's incredibly short, five verses. But in chapter two, he says, 
I'm going to bring them back to myself. And in chapter number three, Hosea is bringing Gomer back to himself. Uh, chapter three, verse one, then said the Lord unto me, go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an omer of barley and a half omer of barley. And I said unto her, thou shalt abide for many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I be, so will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without a teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And so as we turn the spotlight back on Hosea and Gomer, Gomer has left. Gomer's uh, completely separated herself from Hosea. She's quit coming back home. She's went to her lovers. Uh, she's going out and living this adulterous lifestyle, the lifestyle of a harlot. Uh, he's, I guess, left to raise the kids alone that aren't even all his, right? And he doesn't know where she's at, doesn't know if she is well, doesn't know if she's even still alive. And God comes to him one day and says, Hosea, your wife is still alive. She has hit rock bottom. There's not much left of her but I want you to continue to love her. I want you to go back, go out and buy your wife. Something that was already yours, I want you to pay a price for what already belonged to you. And that's redemption, right? And so this is what he is to do. He tells him how much to pay. Now my question is, under what circumstances would he need to go back and buy his wife? What happened to her? Okay, about have to be slavery, right? And so she went after her adulterous lifestyle, seeking after flagons of wine, as it says there, seeking after all of the things that her lovers provided her for, living a, a opulent lifestyle. And finally, after all of her lovers turned against her, after she was used up and she was just uh, a, for lack of better terms, a worn out prostitute, uh, she wasn't worth anything to anyone anymore. She had nothing to sell. Still living that lifestyle, more than likely she accrued debts that she couldn't pay. And whenever you accrue debts that you couldn't pay and the collectors come, you don't have anything to give them, they sell you into slavery, right? And so guess what we have here? We have someone who has been sinful, rebellious, uh, trying to do their own thing and accumulated a debt that they couldn't pay in bondage, and needing salvation. And so we see the, the conclusion, really, of all, all of what we're looking at in Hosea, of how this is a picture of salvation. And so as he's coming, he gets the money in his hand, and he would have went to where they were selling the slaves. You research uh, a little bit into what slave markets and stuff would have been like back then, and you get a better picture of it, and it shows us even more what Christ has done for us. But uh, I'm going to read into Scripture just a little bit, okay? Uh, just with the culture, with the way that things went then. They would have the slaves 
uh, on the open market. They would have been displayed publicly, most likely with very little clothes, if any, humiliated, and they would be there as a public spectacle with people bidding on them like livestock. And so Hosea would have came up, and most likely Gomer would have seen him there. And what would, have, what, what would Gomer's thoughts have been toward Hosea in that circumstance? Yeah, here to humiliate me more. Would she be glad to see him? No, because she knows she's not deserving of anything. She knows how she's mistreated him, right? And so she's not worthy. She's not deserving. Really, she's worthy of death, and he has right to put her to death for all the things that she has done. And so he's in the crowd. She probably thinks that he's there to gloat, right? And so as they start bidding on her, he joins in and starts to bid. And so then that's going to turn from confusion, maybe anger, to fear. What does he want with me? Because now she's not going to be his wife. She's going to be his slave, right? And so why is he trying to buy me? Why is he paying this price for me? Is he going to kill me? Is he going to punish me? Is he going to cause me to suffer? What is he going to do to me? And so he pays this payment uh, the normal price for a slave had been around 30 pieces of silver. He pays 15 and a little bit of barley. That gives you an idea of the condition that she was in at the time. She wasn't worth much. And so he buys her. And I like to paint the rest of the picture in my head, okay? And so how would this have went? She's there on display. She's naked. And he knows what he's doing. He knows he's coming to buy his wife back. And we've already talked about how in verse 14 that God's going to allure, he's going to woo her, right? And so he comes and he's got a garment that's prepared and he wraps her in this garment, covers her nakedness and her shame, right? And he leads her away, takes the ropes off of her and says, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer a, a harlot, but you are my wife. And for the first time in her life, she realizes what unconditional love is, Right? The idea of redeeming is to be bought from the slave market and set free to never be sold again, okay? So think about a slave who is purchased, the debt is paid, and then they take the ropes off of them and say, you're free to go. And so that's what redemption is. You are bought out of slavery, the bondage is ended, and you are set free. And so this was what would have happened to Gomer here. Hosea would have clothed her just as Jesus clothes us with his righteousness, right? He would have taken the bonds, the bands, the ropes off of her just as Jesus sets us free. And he would have taken her to himself, to his home, to be his bride, as if she had never been a used-up harlot, right? And so we have a twofold application in this. The main one is for the nation of Israel, obviously, because God had um, God had covenanted together, He had uh, basically took them to be His bride, right? And even though uh, He became their God, they became His people. They continually chased after other gods, and He ended up letting them. He'd chastise them. He'd do whatever He could to keep them from going away. But it came to a place where He let them fall into their sin, to their idolatry knowing that they're going to uh, 
as I said before, they're going to hit rock bottom. And he's still there reaching out to them. He's still there extending mercy. He's still there loving them. And then we come to Jesus, and this is where it kind of crosses over a little bit, that even though Israel was his, they went away, but he was going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back into the land. He was going to keep his covenants, his promises with them. But Jesus is where he bought them back. And so Christ died not just for the church, but he also died for Israel. Okay? And so he paid that price. He redeemed them. He showed his love for them. And at this moment, they are still rejecting him. At this moment, the Jews have still rejected him. But after the time of Jacob's trouble, after the time of all of the sorrows, the difficulties, and things that they're going to endure for following after their own ways, God is going to bring them back to himself. And there's going to be a remnant of Israel that is still saved, that are still going to turn to him and follow him. But coming to us as Christians, we see in this that we identify with Gomer as well. Uh, not necessarily her being a picture of the church, but her being a picture of us individually, that we are sinful, we are broken, we are used up, right? There, the Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that there is no good in us, there's nothing that we have to offer. And in spite of all that, Jesus is willing to come and pay a lot bigger price than 15 pieces of silver and some barley. That Jesus was willing to empty himself, that he was willing to give his life in exchange for us to pay a debt because this is the thing, we've accumulated a lot bigger debt than what Gomer had. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Our debt was so big, there was no way that we could pay it. We were in bondage so great, there was no way that we could ever escape it on our own. But instead, Jesus was willing, out of his love for us, to pay that price, to set us free, to buy us back unto himself, so that he could show us his uh, His unlimited, his unconditional love. He could bring about salvation in our lives. And so what Hosea shows us about salvation in the Old Testament, what we see about Jesus in the Old Testament is what we've been highlighting all along. Uh, it's not because we're worthy, not because we're deserving. Because if you look at Gomer, to play out this entire scenario, God finds one of the least fit candidates, right? If he would have said, go out and find a decent woman and try to make it work with her, hey, that would be all right. That's what most men try to do, right? But he says, I want you to go and find the least likely candidate. I want you to find uh, man's last pick. I want you to find someone that you know is not going to be faithful, someone that you know is not going to make a good wife, not going to make a good mother, and I want you to marry them. She has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Even after he takes her in and tries to make her an honest woman, she's still going back to her old ways and so with all of that, there's no redeeming qualities in Gomer whatsoever because all of the redeeming qualities are in Hosea. There's no redeeming qualities in us. We are sinful. We are corrupt. But it is Christ. It is his righteousness. It is his goodness that saves us. And so whenever we start trying to paint ourselves up a little prettier, whenever we start trying to make ourselves a little bit better, we talk ourselves into, well, I'm a pretty good person. 
I'm a moral person. I don't do this. I, I've never killed anyone. I've never done this or that and the other. We don't realize that we are still sinners, that we still come short of the glory of God, that we are still worthy of death. The wages are still the same. And we might make excuses for those things, but in the end, we have nothing to offer Jesus. Whenever he saves us, uh, he's definitely on the bad end of the bargain, just like Hosea was with Gomer. And so as you look at Hosea, you look at him and you think, how could Hosea ever love a woman like that? How could Hosea ever go through all of that? That's what Christ done for us. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it. That's what Christ done for us. And so if we can look at Hosea and get that idea and we can transfer that over to ourselves, we begin getting a, a little bit of a glimpse into what salvation truly is. Okay? Because until we get an, a, a picture like this, an object lesson like this, to realize how unfaithful we are to God, how often that we are trying to do our own thing, that we're looking to succeed in the world. We're trying to do the things that please the world. We're trying to gain the whole world, right? We're unfaithful to God. We are, as a harlot, we are looking to fulfill the... We are looking to fulfill the needs that only God can fill in all the other places besides Him. And isn't that what we said earlier was the definition of adultery? We look to him, or we look to the world to give us our happiness, to bring about satisfaction, to make us feel worthy and loved and all these different things when that's supposed to be found in him. We try to get the acceptance of the world. We try to get we try to live in such a way that we please the world whenever the acceptance of God and his pleasure is the only thing that we should be after. And so we are giving the things that belong to God to someone else. We're more like Gomer than we give ourselves credit for. And then that cheapens the love that God has for us. Whenever we say, we're actually pretty lovable. We're pretty good people. You know, maybe Jesus didn't get such a bad deal whenever he got me after all. We've deceived ourselves, right? And so whenever we do that, Jesus' love isn't so miraculous. It's not so great. We've cheapened it. We've dumbed it down a little bit. And we are ungrateful. That's one of the charges against uh, Gomer in chapter number two. He says, I've given you everything and you've credited others with it. I've given you everything and you've been unthankful. You didn't care any that I was the one that supplied it all along. Right? And that's how we live our lives. So anyway, it's, it's humbling to look at and see this picture and to realize that we're that undeserving but that God is that loving. And so it should drive that appreciation. It should separate our hearts from the things that try to allure us away from God. All the other suitors that are after our affections 
can't compare to the God that loves us. And so that should cause us to turn away from them, to quit following after all these cheap fly-by-night thrills that the world has to offer, and to be faithful to God, and God alone, right? To see Him for what He truly is, the one that will never leave us nor forsake us, the one that's the, the lover of our soul, the one who was willing to give absolutely everything to redeem us into himself. And so the, the love of God is impossible for us to fully grasp, I think. But it's stories like Hosea's that help us to understand that. And if we can take the blinders off for a little bit and dive into this and identify with the right people, we want to be the hero. We want to be Jose and say, oh, we've been good people, and look at how we've been mistreated. That's not what the story is saying. And uh, I'll say just through the rest of the book of Hosea, God's laying out to the people of Israel how that they have treated him, the things that they have done, uh, and how he's dealt with them and everything, but what his plans are for the future, because I said it's a book of prophecy, right? So the last thing that I want to look at here, unless someone has something, is in chapter number 14. Chapter number 14, verse 1, it says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips. Asher did not save us. We will not ride up on horses, neither will we say any more of the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless find mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from me, or from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as a lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. So as we look at these verses in chapter 14, he says, I'm not casting away Israel just because of their sins and the things that they've done against me. They are mine. They are still mine. They're going to go through chastisement. They're going to face their consequences but I'm going to return them back to myself. And God says he's going to be the one that heals them. That God's going to be the one that fixes them. Uh, in verses 2, it says, Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Once again, a picture of salvation. Of course, Israel, they were already God's people. But he says, Don't bring to me your sacrifices. Don't bring to me your good works, but instead come to me confessing your iniquity and seeking for salvation, and I will receive you graciously. So, as I said, salvation's been the same all the way along. It is by His grace. We receive it by faith. He keeps us. He cleanses us. He chases us whenever we stumble when we fall, when we're the lost sheep that goes astray. He brings us back. He's going to bring us safely into the place that he's prepared for us. And though we're messed up and we continue to mess up, he still deals with us lovingly, gently, kindly. And he is the one that gets trampled over time after time after time. And yet he still loves us. So does anyone have anything tonight?
Israel's poems and when you know it's it's evident that it's talking about Israel, God in Israel and obviously Christ in the sinner. But we still don't tend to see ourselves as going. <laughs> yeah, you know, we just don't. No. There's always that sort of he's really bad, but you know, it, the the Pharisee comes out and doesn't say, "God, I'm glad I'm not like her." Yeah, exactly. Right, mm-hmm. that, that way you get home to it. Yeah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you tonight. Just thank you for your blessings, Lord. We do thank you for this time in your Word, for this illustration that we have in uh, Hosea's life. That uh, Lord. Uh, it's just hard for us to fathom you love us like you do. Lord, we, we understand that we, we're oftentimes blind to our faults and make excuses for our failures, Lord. And so often we're like Gomer going after our own lusts and our own desires and seeking to please everyone but you, showing our love and our affection to everyone but you, appreciative to everyone but you. But Lord, help us to uh, truly appreciate your love and your salvation. We thank you that it's not based upon our goodness, because as we've seen, we're like Gomer. But Lord, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're loving. Thank you that you're long-suffering, patient with us. And Lord, we just praise you for who you are, for what you've done. And we just ask you to continue working in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, I just pray that you draw us closer to you. And Lord, just continue doing that needed work in our lives. We thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.